It's time to run the pass. Today's guest on the show is Byron Gomez. He's on the current season of Top Chef, Top Chef Portland. Really phenomenal chef, has worked in some great restaurants in New York, uh, worked under uh, Daniel Balloud, uh, worked at the number one restaurant in the world at, at, when it received that recognition, uh, 11 Madison Park. And right now he is in Aspen. His restaurant is 7908. We're going to get into all of that. We're going to get into Top Chef. Uh, we're going to get into his experience in New York. But most of all, really excited to have Byron on the show. Uh, Byron Gomez, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I mean, it's uh, it's a pleasure having you know the time to uh, share this with you. And thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. Really, really looking forward to just hanging out and, and talking. You know, it's it's funny. I, I you know obviously I follow you on social media, um, and I see you're everywhere these days. It's like you're on tour. What, what what's what's going on? I see you were in, you were in Austin. You're in Houston. I see you were camping in the woods. Uh, are, you just, are you just taking are you just taking time off, or are you just hanging out? What are you doing? I mean, um, you know, after being caged up in, in in quarantine for you know and like all this crazy thing that's going on in the world. Um, no, I I just really like to travel. You know, I really like to travel uh -huh. and. The opportunities that, that has presented uh, recently with with making, you know, new connections, networking with with everything that's going on in my life right now, which is very busy. Um, mm -hmm. I also have the luxury of um, Aspen is a very seasonal town. So uh, we we're pretty much off like a month to a month and a half between summer and winter and then between spring and summer. Uh, so I took the time to travel, hang out with friends, cook for different events and uh, just yeah, I think I went to what I think it was nine different cities in like a month and a half. I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, you know, what were some of the culinary highlights that you had in, in your travels? Well, let's start with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the garrison. I will say, if Michelin was to be in Austin or in Texas, you guys would definitely crush it. Uh, it, it was a very inspiring meal. Oh, uh, thank you, Joe. That, that means a lot. Well. Thank you. Yeah, no, from, from what you did and, and your staff, your executive, Sue, uh, I believe it was Chef de Cuisine, I forget. Mm -hmm. um, he, I mean, the, the way everything, the, the whole meal was just so beautiful, so uh, paced out correctly, uh, everything made sense, uh, presentation. Well, I, I haven't had that kind of dining in like yeah. a year and a half, pretty much. So it was uh, it was something very beautiful. Thank you. So thank you. So your place yeah, was thank really you. great. That, that, that means a lot. Shout out to, to Jacob, who's the Chef de Cuisine. Amazing. Uh, yeah, he's, he's crushing it. Uh, and then what else? Uh, went to New Orleans and had to eat for the first time at Commander's Palace. I mean, it's such a staple and like, you know, uh, such a well-respected establishment within the community, the industry and, and you know, worldwide, I would say. Uh, so had the turtle soup, which they told me was like must have. Uh, mm -hmm. Really good. <laughs> yeah, Obviously the yeah. gumbo and everything. Uh, the service was really amazing. So I uh, had a really good time there. Then uh, where else? Uh, went to... You were in Houston. I saw you were in Houston. Yes. Visited an old friend of mine that we used to work together. Actually, Ari Bluthorn was my uh, executive chef when I was at Cafe uh -huh. Bernou after Gavin Kaysen left. And uh, yeah, it was just so, so awesome seeing him and seeing some of the staff that uh, were with him that I know from Cafe Bernou. Uh, he's doing some amazing things in Houston. So if anyone is local from out there, go check him out. And then where else? I went to, uh, let's see, uh, Saison over in San Francisco. Uh, had oh, a few yeah. buddies who uh, actually 
Uh, Richard Lee is the uh, chef de cuisine there now. He took over after Laurent Gras. And then uh, there was like three or four cooks, uh, some sous chefs that I worked with at 11 Madison Park. So, uh, yeah, again, they're crushing it. Really, really amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of and then everywhere in between uh, different spots. So it was a good it was a good tour. <laughs> so Laurent Gras, you know, people that don't know who, the, who he is, he's a you know, legendary chef, by the way. Um, I, I ate at uh, L2O um, just after he left and okay. uh, Matthew Kirk. Matthew Kirkley had taken over L2O in Chicago. Yes. Um, so this was right when it got three Michelin stars and then Matthew Kirkley took over. But I remember getting a tour of the kitchen in L2O um, by Chef Kirkley. And uh, there was these black silicon mats uh, on all the kitchen counters over all the stainless. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I just kept, I was yeah. like, what is this? It was, it was really interesting. So I didn't ask, I didn't ask at the time. Uh, but years later, I asked someone who worked in that kitchen and they said it was because uh, he didn't like noise of pots and pans and he wanted to just have, uh, so when you put a pot down, you could put so a pot sound. down on any surface and it was, and it was silent. Wow. Like, okay. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I thought, okay, that's, that's detail, right? That's pretty cool. I thought it was a cool story. Well, uh, I don't know if it's true or not. Working at 11 Madison Park, you know, we kind of deal with almost like the same culture. So I, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool story. Hopefully someone listening can verify if that's true or not. Uh, but chef, I want, to, I want to talk about you. Let's get a little bit into your background and how you started cooking, uh, cool. you know, in the early days. What, tell us about your first job and, and, and breaking into the industry. I mean, my first job, uh, I was what, 14, I, I was 15 years old. It was a, uh, it was a summer job. I wasn't doing anything around the house and, and a family member approached my parents and like, Hey, uh, you know, I, I need some help. And, and does, does Byron want to work? And, um, I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's give it a shot. So my first job was at a very famous restaurant called Burger King. Um, that's where kind of, you know, it all went downhill after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You started at the top. You started exactly, at the top. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, world renowned, you know, anything past that, it's, it's very hard to beat. <laughs> so um, it, it pretty much started, uh, I was a front cashier and then um, mm -hmm. kind of didn't really understand how people have a hard time ordering off the menu that's been there for like 50 years and it hasn't mm -hmm. changed. So I'm like, okay. Uh, and then they put me on drive-thru, you know, as a young kid, I thought like I knew everything and, and that was hard, you know, the multitasking, like listening on the mic, taking the order, doing the drinks, making change, talking in the window, punching in the order. And I was like, ah, oh, this is a little bit too much for me. And, uh, one day a guy called out sick in the kitchen and, uh, I, I always tell the story. Um, they asked me to like, kind of help out with prep, but I really couldn't work service because I wasn't 18 according to, uh, uh uh, corporate policies so they had me kind of like doing prep and i remember putting this tomato and on this like device that had like four feet pretty much and like a little basket with blades and you pull a lever and it pushes the tomato to the blades and like this perfect tomatoes and i was like like a 15 year old i was like this is great this like these toys are amazing and i'm actually cooking i wasn't cooking at all <laughs> i was just yeah. kind of perfect tomatoes um, and then they kind of like let me work the assembly line a little bit. And I really, really dug it. Did that for that summer. Then went back to high school. Uh, the next year, my next job was TGI Fridays, another very famous restaurant. I don't even know if there's TGI mm -hmm. Fridays around. I know there's Applebee's is around, but TGI Fridays? I don't even know there's still things around. I, I don't know if they still exist. I hope so. Got to miss TGI Fridays. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you need to put that on your next food tour when you're going around the world. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, I kind of worked up the ranks there. And uh, I remember this one incident. Um, I was there for a year. I, I was I started as the prep cook. Then I went over to uh, appetizers, did a little bit of serving shifts just because I wanted to really get involved in, in, in the whole industry and, 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 and the business aspect of, of the restaurant. Uh, and then my last station was pretty much the, the grill station, like the high station. And, and, and I had moved up the ranks very, very fast. And there was an incident with a guy that uh, we were doing shift change and I was changing his hotel pants. Like just change his flat iron steaks because they were all like you know uh, bloody whatever from the din- uh, from the lunch service. Set up his station and he's I don't know he just came in a bad mood and he got really got upset and we got into like an altercation. He like slammed. I was holding a hotel pan full of steaks. He slammed it on the floor. I dropped it and then he kicked it and the edge of the hotel pan like cut my chin. And then he's like, I remember the words vividly. He's like you think you could come here and like take my job? I was like, dude, that's not about that. I'm just changing your station, this and that. And he's like, you will never be anything above a line cook. And I was like, I took that very deep inside. Of me. I took that to the heart. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to prove you wrong, bro. I got to prove you wrong. And that incident kind of like uh, really lit up a fire in me. And, and my, my situation at the moment, also my, like my, my legal status, which we'll talk about later, uh, mm-hmm. my um, immigration status, uh, I had no choice. Uh, at this point, was either a factory job, nine to five, or kind of venture out there and, and, and see what else was out there. I couldn't go to culinary school because of my immigration status. I had to pretty much pay twice as much tuition. Uh, I couldn't go to college. And seeing my sisters, that was, my sister is two years older than me. And, she was national honor roll and she was getting offers all these scholarships. But because again, our immigration status, we couldn't, she couldn't proceed, you know, her studies. And I was like, okay, I got to do something with myself. I'm pretty good with my hands. I kind of like this whole cooking gig situation and it's gotten better and better location wise and knowledge. And I just really engulfed myself in, in culinary arts. I set myself some goals. I moved out to New York city. I started working at Michelin starter restaurants and uh, pretty much did it all. Did the whole rounds, even to like work working at a number one restaurant in the world. So I think I proved that guy wrong from back in the day. It's it's amazing how these small moments can really transform you for the rest of your life. And my my situation was similar to yours. Uh, I was working in a bakery, and uh, I got demoted to dishwasher because they okay. thought I wasn't good enough. You know, I was, I was 17 year old kid. And they said, you know, you're just, you're just not good enough. This isn't for you. So they demoted me to dishwasher. And I just remember thinking one day you'll be sorry, I'm going to come back and fire all of exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously I never did that, but that was my motivation to prove to them that I was more than what they thought I was. I mean, it, I think it speaks violence about our character, you know, at that point, at that age, you know, we're not exposed to, to the world. We're just, you know, we're still living with mom and dad. But there are these situations that there's a wide section and it's up to us how we decide to go about it. You know, we could sit there and pout and be like, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, or we could be like, I'm going to prove you wrong. So, um, yeah, I think it takes a special kind of person to have that kind of character or build it at that young age and continue with their career and their decision for sure. So then you worked in some of the best restaurants in New York City. So talk to us a little bit about that. What was what was the experience like going into you know, uh, everything from, you know, working under Daniel Balud, Gavin Kaysen, uh, and then being at the number one restaurant in the world at 11 Madison Park. And tell us, tell us, how did you get that confidence to go into those restaurants? And then what was the journey like while you were there? 
so yeah, so I was kind of working for mom and pop shops, this and that. And then um, Danny Balu had posted an ad um, and, and, you know, I kind of follow him through cookbooks and, 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 and YouTube and whatnot. Um, and then I was like, all right, well, I really want to work for this guy because he's like an OG. Uh, and, you know, let, let me see what, and I submitted my application, but always doubted myself um, just because, you know, you're young, you don't think you have what it takes. Uh, and I was like, well, this, I never went to culinary school. I don't really have the kind of cuisine or finesse that, you know, he's looking for, for his establishments. And this guy has kids from all over the world. Some of the best culinary schools in the world coming in and staging or, or working a year with him. And, but I was like, you know what, let me do it. Let me just throw it out there and see what happens. I got a call back, did my first stage. Uh, I didn't even know what a stage was back in the day. So I uh, did my first stage. I went to Barbara Lou, huge restaurant. And I was like, this is the first time I stepped into a brigade that was this big, this well-composed, it was a well-oiled machine. And uh, I guess I nailed it, nailed it. And they called me back and they're like, well, Daniel Balu is opening two places. He's opening a pizzeria Balu on the same corner and Balu suit is Mediterranean concept. So it was like pretty much three restaurants in one corner on 64th and Broadway, right across the street from uh, Lincoln Center, the opera house in New York City. So yeah, started working there and uh, opened the restaurants. Crazy experience, never opened a restaurant to that magnitude and uh, that caliber. It taught me a lot. Um, and then I went out to work to DBGB, which it was his like burger, sausage joint down, downtown in Bowery. And then after working for two years in the company, I was like, I think I'm ready for my first Michelin experience. And that's when I uh, went to work at Cafe Boulou. Uh, at the time, it was Gavin Kaysen, uh, which Gavin Kaysen to me, obviously, is a huge mentor, uh, an idol that I, I even until now, I still look up to any advice and things like that. I, I, I kind of text Gavin and he always guides me with the best advice. Uh, and at that time, well, still, I uh, Gavin is very involved with uh, Bocuse Duor, and he was the coach for the U.S. team. Uh, and we would, like, share stories. He would tell us things, like, during service, like, his training and everything. And that was very inspirational. Uh, so I did my first star Michelin. I worked for Daniel Boulou, what, five years? And I would say Cafe Boulou was my culinary school. Um, mm. There they have the menus broken down into four different parts, and it changes pretty much every season. Uh, so yeah, so I stuck around there for two years. I learned so much. I mean, we were responsible to come up with specials and we were responsible to come up with weekly pre-fee menus, depending what shift you work. And, uh, they really, really taught you classical French cuisine that, uh, was something very fundamental to my cooking. Worked at Danielle for a little bit, worked at Feast of Vets, did a few events. So I was all over the company just because uh, I was working pastry with Chef Gaia on my days off. It came to the point where I wouldn't even have a day off because I just wanted to go stage. I just wanted to learn more. And, and I wasn't making a lot of money, you know? And like I said, I was in my culinary school and it was like my one day off, whether I spend it, you know, at home and I don't really have money to eat lunch or I go stage, learn and get family meal. And it's a win-win situation. You know, that's how I always saw it. Um, and then that led me to doing something different I was there for five years and then at, well, I was what, 26, 27? And then I was like, all right, let's start from scratch. Let's move on from classical French, Danny Berlou. And at that time, there was a big movement with uh, Scandinavian 
and Nordic mm-hmm. cuisine with Noma coming up and, and all this uh, cool stuff. So I was like, the closest one uh, was Atera, uh, two-star Michelin in New York City. And Ronnie mm-hmm. Ember had taken over. He came from Denmark um, and taken over. And I was like, all right, I did a one-star. Now let me do a two-star. What year was this that you were working there? This was around 2015, 16. So yeah. for people that, that might not know, the Nordic movement at this time, it's the biggest movement in culinary that we've seen in about 10 years since yeah. the Spanish came in. And exactly. um, so, so, so working in a restaurant like that is you are, especially because there wasn't a lot of that in the United States at the time. No, not at all. Yeah. If, I mean, if any, if any. So this is like a, a, a world-class experience for people that don't know. I'm sure there was a line to get into a restaurant like that. Yeah, it was. And I mean, it was only what, it was six of us uh in the kitchen and it was very european style you know we would come in at eight o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't leave till like 2 a.m and do that for six days a week uh you know tasting menu you have about 18 courses for uh 30 people two seatings a night uh yeah so it was it was very very different um and, and again it was part of that wave that nordic movement i mean i think Noma got number one in the world, starting getting, I think, in 2011, uh, yeah, 2011, I think 12, then they skipped mm-hmm. a year, and then 14, something along those lines. Uh, so, yeah, so I was, you know, part of learning something new that was getting brought to the United States, and really no one else was doing it. Uh, so, yeah, I was there for about a year, year and a half. It was amazing. And then I was like, okay, now it's time for my next move. What's next? I'd done classical French already. So let's shoot for a three-star Michelin. But I was like, do I go to John George? Do I go to Le Bernardin? Uh, the only places that had three stars at that time was either Massa, but I'm like, I'm not Japanese, and I don't think they're going to set me there. And it was 11 Madison Park. 11 Madison Park was, I would say, a cross between New American and seasonal and very New York and, you know, European, French techniques. I was like, uh, and... Not only the kitchen was 11 Madison Park very known for, but also for the service style with Will Gadara. Uh, I mean, such an inspirational human being. And, and to be working with him, uh, it was something that really marked my life that even I still kind of do things, uh, try to do things like um, from that kind of culture, just because uh, it really marked me of how excellent they were. So, yeah, so I got hired to uh, to be uh, at 11 Madison Park. And again, you start from the bottom, no matter where have you worked at before, at a three-star Michelin, most likely you will start as a commie. So I started there for about two days and then moved on to Garmage and then just kind of moved up the ranks. Uh, a year later, I was the uh, sous chef of the fish line and uh, we got number one in the world during my time there, the San Pellegrino 50 best. Uh, number one in the world, which was an amazing time. Uh, we there was a documentary out called Seven Days Out on Netflix, and it's about Eleven Madison Park reopening and so on and so forth. We were able to do a pop up in the Hamptons, actually two back to back pop ups in the Hamptons, two different summers, and then one in Aspen in the winter. So it was a very uh, what a time to be alive and, and, and be working at that establishment. Uh, so it was definitely a blessing and something that uh, has marked my life and once in a lifetime experience, for sure. So, you know, I'm fascinated by kitchen culture and having worked in three of you know New York City's uh, best restaurants with 11 Madison Park and, and Cafe Balut and, and uh, Danielle, um, amongst others. 
What are some of the cultural differences in the kitchen between between those kitchens? Uh, some of the cultural, okay. Um, I mean, it's changed a lot, I would say, since I started. But starting with Daniel Ballou and, and Dynex, uh, it, it, it was very cutthroat. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it was very, uh, that whole culture of like old school French mentality, you know, being harsh on people and things like that. I definitely experienced that. Um, but I also think it was important at that time just because you needed to weed out because of the competition. I mean, everybody wants the job. And at the end of the day, there has to be a standard that needs to be upheld by these restaurants. And if you don't cut it, you don't cut it. You know, simple as that. But uh, once you endure long enough or you're there long enough, like you're part of the family, you know, which is really, really amazing. So I guess it's like the army or, or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, if it's worth it, uh, you know, you're putting your time and they will give back to you, which is really, yeah, there, really awesome. There's an initiation period pretty much. Exactly. There's an initiation period. Yeah. It's very, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you could, you could narrow it down to that. Uh, then working, so it was very chaotic. Uh, a lot of stuff going on, but you still had to focus. And then going to a Terra, extremely quiet. Just six people in the kitchen, everybody focused. Very, very long hours. Um, so that was just something very, very different. Uh, a little bit more finesse, just because you're not doing that many people at, at sitting at one time. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit more technicality to it. There's a little bit more technique and, and plating. So Daniel Ballou pretty much taught me how to cook. Atera taught me how to plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I brought those two things over to 11 Madison Park. And then 11, mm-hmm. 11 Madison Park, uh, it's a quiet kitchen, a silent kitchen. But it's something that I actually really like. Uh, I mean, here mm-hmm. at, at 7908 in Aspen, during prep time, you know, we, we play music, we, you know, we, we all chat, this and that, get our job done. But once service comes around, uh, all you hear is the ticket machine and pretty much my voice and the cooks calling back and kind of, so it, it's nice. And it keeps, them, it keeps them more focused, which I find uh, very, very soothing, especially during service. But also the one thing that I've, find that I realize everywhere I've worked, it's like, you're part of this big family, no matter where you work, no matter where you're at, um, no matter if you haven't, I mean, let's take you and I, you know, we've never met before. And here we are doing something together just because we know the industry and, and we work that place that we really care for. So being part of this family in the hospitality business worldwide, it, it pays off. And, and, and we'll do it for passion. And that's a beautiful thing. We all are artists in our own ways and we'll express ourselves different ways. But uh, I think what brings us happiness is seeing someone else smile and be able to mentor someone else. No, th- those are all very good points. So you talk about the different, uh, you know, almost the mindset that you need to have going into these kitchens. If you were given to give advice to a young chef that was going to go work at one of these three restaurants. And, and let's just, it doesn't matter which one, but what type of advice would you give someone that has never worked in that type of environment and they were going into that environment for the first time? What would be the keys to success? So there's two ways that I look at it is an outer experiences and inner experiences type of thing. So the outer ones, just get ready to be very, very physically demanding. It's a standard, like I said, that they hold. And, and it's something that once you learn it and, and you endure it, 
you'll build such a thick skin that your confidence will take you anywhere and, and just kind of going through that boot camp situation. So, you know, long hours, your feet are going to hurt, um, things like that. So that's the outer um, situation. Then the inner is, I was listening to um, a, quote, uh, a little interview and it, it was with uh, Jay-Z, uh, one of my favorite like hip hop artists. And he's like, he says something along the lines of like, um, it's not about, the success and being famous it's about knowing that you have a god-given talent and being able to express yourself through that cooking is very much like it you know uh there, there are people who could cook and there are people who obviously cannot cook uh but you need to start finding out you need to start in the kitchen to see where you fit uh, there's some people that are really good with uh, the dining room situations um, that's something that i'm not i mean i wish i could dress up like a sommelier and, and, you know, in a suit and a tie and like have all these beautiful words and this posture, you know, I know about wine. That's like so romantic to me. I, I'm, I, I don't, you know, I, I belong in the kitchen. But uh, just um, knowing that it's not about the fame and just putting your time. And if it's really if it's really something that interests you, you know, it will pay off eventually. But you have to put in the time. And I mean, now, now I could say because. I guess I pay my dues and my career has taken me elsewhere, but everybody gets to whatever point it needs to get different ways. You know, uh, you can't be copying other people. You, you start learning a lot about yourself, about what kind of food you like to do, what kind of ingredients you like to use, what techniques suit you best. Um, and it's like, a, it's like a little teenager kind of going through junior high and high school. You know, you, you hang out with this group. No, no, I don't like this group anymore. You go hang out with these people. I don't know. Eventually you find out who you are, but it, it takes about 10 to 15 years to be like, okay, mm-hmm. this is the kind of chef that I am. So just keeping a positive and humble attitude, ego, leave it at the door and, and just very, very receptive of criticism, whether it is positive or negative is, is, is definitely there to help you out. So, you know, I kind of want to, uh, Talk a little bit about your current project in Aspen. I know you have the Supper Club. Tell people a little bit about that. For people that don't know what a Supper Club is, can you kind of also explain what that concept is? Yeah, so I took over this project about a year and a half ago. Uh, This project is, what, two two and a half years old. So I took it about a year later. Uh, So it's a Supper Club. So pretty much we're taking the idea of back in the day, places like uh, the Morocco Club, Copacabana, places that have kind of died down. But uh, it works very well here in Aspen, especially in the winter, just because um, our, our model here at 7908 is uh, eat, drink, and dance. So mm-hmm. um, pretty much you, you come in and you have dinner, and it's a fine dining experience. We have a master sommelier on staff. Our cocktail program is really, really amazing from presentation to taste to how innovative it is to how much it changes. Um, you know, so, so you, you're having a good meal and it's like a handoff. Then that gets handed off to the bar and the cocktail program is great. Then that gets handed off to the wine program. I mean, we have, a, like I said, a master sommelier. So he takes care of all the beautiful pairings. And then um, you decide to stay around long enough. And then it turns into a fancy lounge club type of atmosphere. We have a world-renowned mm-hmm. DJ who's our resident DJ. And, you know, he, uh, he plays some great tunes i mean we've had people from paris hilton to uh 
Diplo, the DJ Diplo to come over, uh, a lot of athletes and the who's who pretty much that come here to Aspen, kind of come mm-hmm. to 7908 and, and have the party. We have our rooms are separated. We have two rooms that are accessible by our stairs. One of them is called the lounge. The other one is the dining room plus the bar. So they both rooms have a different feel to them. So it's a place that you can literally spend six, seven hours and in the same place and do different things and not even realize how much time has gone by. That sounds cool. Uh, you know, let's talk about the food there. Do you have like a specific formula that you use when writing menus? Uh, so <laughs> a lot of R&D goes into it. So I change my menus seasonally. So there's two mm-hmm. things that we work here. We work in the summer that starts early June until pretty much mid-October. Then we close down because the whole town pretty much shuts down. And then we open back again in the winter, early December, till pretty much when the snow finishes and they close down the mountains, which is mid-April. So uh, the dishes that are in the summer are not going to be presented in the winter just because of accessibility of product, uh, influences. So in the in the summer, I like to keep it more light, uh, Latin, Southeast Asian, North African inspired. And then in the winter, a little bit more heavier because people are coming down from skiing all day. They want like their big steaks. They want their heavy food. So it's more like uh, European, like French, uh, more American, uh, things like that. So uh, it changes. Um, we're we're actually rolling out this summer series in our lounge twice a month. We're going to do special dinners um, and it's going to be a, a ticketed event, uh, special dinners. We're going to start off June 17th. We'll be with uh, our my good friend uh, from the show, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, Gabe Arales. He is from Austin, Texas. Absolutely amazing chef. Great family man, gentleman, just a really cool guy all around. So he's coming over, and uh, we're partnering up with Lalo Tequila. Uh, so, yeah, it should be a fun one. So that kicks off, and in the works, there's going to be farmers that are going to come over, and we're going to utilize all their produce on the menu. There's going to be master sommelier dinners. Uh, there's going to be, yeah, so a whole bunch of things we're planning for the summer. So it should be fun. That's exciting, Chef. Uh, you know, one of the things that we were we were joking about earlier uh, is how tough it is to find cooks today. Uh, I, I, I assume it's it's as equally as tough in Aspen as it is here in Austin right now. Where are all the cooks at? So one thing that I realized this past month and a half, I thought it was an Aspen issue. It's a nationwide issue. Uh, it's so crazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in, in, in my life. Um, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I'm offering way above that I, what I usually offer and, and nothing. Um, I, I don't know if people just make career changes or people are just enjoying the, the lifestyle for the past year, which, you know, I don't blame them, but I'm like, how do you guys pay your bills then? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's very hard. It's very hard. I'm assuming you're going through the same situation. Uh, and, and I mean, it's even harder for us because we're a very seasonal, remote town in the mountains. Um, and if you're having a hard time in the big city, it's it's extremely hard for us for sure. It's it's funny. I was uh, uh, someone sent me a post of a restaurant in China that said they were hiring, they were giving signing bonuses, and I thought to myself, if China can't get staff, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> if, they can't get, if they can't find cooks in China, we're in big trouble. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I had to uh, kind of pivot a little bit from the uh, 
kickoff menu that we're featuring just because uh, I don't want to overwhelm my guys and, and just kind of like, you no, know, not, not drop the standard, but uh, it's, it's, it's not something that I want to start with, but I mean, it's still really, really good dishes, but we kind of have to start introducing them slowly as we get staff and, and hopefully things change it in a month from now or two months. Hmm. And, and chef, I just kind of want to pivot just a little bit and, and just ask you, so now you're on top chef for people that don't know, uh, they should be watching the current season of top chef. It's great. But why did you decide on Top Chef right now in your career? Um, I mean, it was something that a lot of people throughout my career was like, you should try out for cooking television. And I was like, no, no, I'm a chef. Uh, you know, I want to focus on this, this and that. And uh, they're like, you know, you have a great personality. You have a good smile. Everybody really loves you. And I was like, all right, we'll see. Uh, so pretty much last, what is it, last April, I was in the same boat as everyone else around the world. You know, we were quarantined. We couldn't leave the house. Uh, it, it got really boring after a while. And I was like, you know, let me see what opportunities are out there. And you just kind of started searching and, and doing all the stuff. And then I get a call by a casting producer and they're like, hey, we want to see if you would like to be a cast uh, and start the process of Top Chef season 18. And I was like, I can't believe I got that call. Like, it was just such a blessing. Uh, but they're like, you know, it's, it's a lengthy process, application process. It takes about two months or so. And you could be dropped at any point. So we're not guaranteeing you anything, but we just want to see if you're considering the idea. Uh, and I was like, yeah, you know what? There's nothing else. Um, the restaurant is closed. Um, this is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a blessing. I don't know how to take it right now, but let's let's go on this journey. I think it was the right time. Previously, I maybe didn't go on anything or apply to anything just because I personally didn't feel like I was ready. Uh, because you got people want to be on television, and, and it's not to me, it's not about being television or being famous, it's about proving like, or, or like knowing that you could hold your own way. I, I don't want to go there and look like a fool just because of my 15 minutes of fame type of thing. Uh, that's the right. last thing I want. I mean, nowadays, exposure and social media is so big that. You know, people are making videos on, uh, on YouTube and getting millions of followers from like five minute videos. And that formula is working now. I didn't come up, you know, through that culture. I'm like a more of like a little old school type of guy. Uh, but I was like, you know, I think it's the right timing. I have the time. The opportunity is here. Uh, let me give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And how has uh, how has it affected your life since, you know, now that, you know, I know the season is running now, but. But do people recognize you on the street? Are you getting pulled off to the side? People want to take pictures with you? Uh, it's so it's literally, I mean, they, they kind of like warn you and stuff like that. And they're like, okay, this and that, but you never really believe it. Uh, and then once the announcement comes, it like your life changes like overnight, like literally. Mm -hmm. Uh, your social media starts blowing up. People want to, you know, get something from you or interview you or this and that. And you're like, whoa this is very overwhelming uh now you have to hire these people on your team that you never thought you needed representation or people need to hire and uh i mean it's so sad that it's not sad but it's just crazy that last year at this time of year like there was nothing going on and now i wake up every morning and i have to look at my calendar just because i don't know what my date i don't know who i need to talk to i need to schedule my day on top of running the restaurant on top of traveling on top of like you know making sure the standards are not dropped here it's 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 awesome it's overwhelming but it's really really cool um not gonna lie you know uh, it feels nice to go to a bar and be like, yeah, you drink some me because I just saw you on TV. Uh, yeah. That's kind of cool. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, kind of like somebody recognizing you on the street and 
I feel more shy than they feel. Like people are yeah. to me, like, can we? I was like, yeah, of course. Uh, but I, I feel more shy than them. I've come to realize. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's cool. It, it's, it's really, really awesome. And I just want to, you know, do it the right way and get the right message out there and just know that at the end of the day, I, I am a chef and this is what I'm passionate for. And, uh, but in the meantime, you know, just ride the wave and take advantage of every opportunity. It's funny that you bring that up because social media or, or you know, a, a little bit of fame, it's, it's weird if you're not used to, especially as a chef, you're in the kitchen, you're a little bit reclusive, you're not used to dealing with people. Uh, and, and by no means am I saying I'm famous, you know, I have this podcast and a couple of other things that I do, but I was in the Whole Foods the other day uh, with my wife and uh, there were some people behind me and they said, that's him. That's the chef. And when I heard that, I just took off. I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just, I just, I just took off really quick once I knew that they wanted to approach me. <laughs> people think I'm outgoing. I'm actually really shy. Um, yeah. We, we are. Us as chefs, we're shy. So uh, it's, it's definitely something new for me. But, but I'm embracing it. You know, I think a picture, a gesture or a picture goes a long way. And, and you can make someone's day by just doing that kind of things. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but I know you're working on something big. Can you can you tell us, uh, you know, one of the things, one of your projects that you're working on? Uh, so one of the projects, uh, I'm kind of initiating thoughts about uh, writing a book. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's not a cookbook it's more of like uh my story uh my story is very uh very complex in a way and the more that i say it the more that i share it with people the more that people are interested and they're like wow can you tell us some more i mean i'm not a writer whatsoever i, I could kind of go ahead and spiel everything but uh I'm not one to kind of edit it. So I'm trying to find the right team, the right people to kind of team up with and, and, and go about this. Uh, it's pretty much of my life, my life in Costa Rica. Uh, I was born in Costa Rica, pretty much moved to the U.S. due to like domestic violence, uh, alcoholism in my family. Uh, so, yeah, and then came into the U.S., dealt with being uh, an immigrant uh, for so many years. Uh, right now, I'm a DACA recipient. For people that don't know what DACA is, can you can you explain that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so DACA is a uh, the U.S. granted a group of individuals here in the U.S. It's, it's like I believe four or five million. Don't quote me on that though. Uh, of people that came from outside the U.S. at a very young age and pretty much grew up in the U.S., but were never able to grant, be granted a citizenship or residency here in the U.S. So it came to a point where they're like, okay, we're, we're grown up enough, uh, but legally we can't work in the U.S., but we can't go back to our countries because we, we grew up here in the U.S. So we're not from over there, but we are from over there. We're not from here, but we are from here. So what do we do? Uh, so the uh, Obama administration pretty much passed this law about DACA. And what they do is they grant us uh, working permits. So we're able to now go to college. We're able to go to school. We're able to work here legally, which that has opened many doors for me. Um, now I'm openly about, you know, I could say and share my story instead of kind of hiding under behind the veil and be like, 
you know, we got to stick together as a community, as an immigrant community. We really can't progress because they might deport us. So there's always that fear, which now I'm very open about it. And and the last administration kind of wanted to get rid of us. So now you you kind of get into politics and all the situations. Uh, so there was like a, an up of like, yeah, we finally got a chance. And then there was like a down of like, what's going to happen tomorrow? And now it's just like at a steady pace, uh, more like a level. We'll see what happens with the current administration. I don't want to get into too many politics, but the opportunities have been better. My life has uh, has been better. Unfortunately, I still cannot travel the world. It's something that I've yearned so much throughout my life. It's just getting out there. And I hear all these stories about people being like, oh, my God, I just went to Sicily and had the most amazing vacation. Or I went to Vietnam and, and had this amazing food. I yearn to have that. But the beautiful thing is that I could do that through cooking. And I've done that through cooking. I lived and I travel through cooking. And and you might say, hey, that's in your imagination. But guess what? Nobody could take that away from me. And that's a beautiful thing. I've met so many people from across the world. I tasted different foods. Uh, and that's you could see that in my cooking. I take influence from everywhere. And I don't really, I'm not a really a box stop chef where I'm like, okay. You're from Costa Rica and you only got to do Costa Rican food. No, uh, I grew up in New York. I'm an immigrant. I'm a DACA recipient and I want to travel the world. And this is all put together on a dish. Here you go. Uh, and there's no mm. right or wrong. And that's a beautiful thing because to me, that's what my America is. So, uh, you know, I'm still working to uh, fix that and working with a few agencies now to kind of be, to speak for them and, and be that, uh, you know, kind of see what this movement is about. So it's something that is very dear to my heart. It's something that is very inspirational and that I'm hoping that it changes not only for me, but for millions of people here in the U.S. that are in the same situation as me. Well, Chef, that's incredible. And I wish you the best of luck on that. I can't wait to read it. Um, And and, uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, It was great seeing you again. It was nice nice, uh, to learn a little bit more about your background, get into some of the nitty gritty uh, you know, the restaurants behind the scenes and congratulations on all the success with Top Chef. And uh, I know the season's still going. I'm cheering for you. I'm cheering for Gabe. Amazing. Uh, both, yes. both, both you guys. But uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thank you again so much. Cool. Thank you so much, Chef. I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, hopefully it's not the last time. And hopefully we get to get put together one day. Yeah, that sounds amazing, Chef. I hope so. Thank you.